another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you don't know by now, my name is Christopher Brown and I will be your host today. Since the launch of the podcast, I've been asked the same thing. Why do you do this? And I give everyone the exact same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a discussion. Today, we often find ourselves becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of having a conversation. So with that in mind, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again with no notes, no questions. I sit down with subjects to learn from them about them. Starting today and for the next two weeks, the cross-border interview podcast sits down with the candidates for the Green Party of Canada leadership. Editorial note, we reached out to all candidates and invited them onto the show. The ones that agreed to the show were recorded and will be released over the next two weeks. Our first guest is Amita Kuttner. Amita and I chat about their vision for the Green Party of Canada, how they see the Green Party of Canada moving forward, and how they can bring Canadians from all political stripes together to gain more seats in the next election and potentially become government. So sit back, relax, and enjoy cross-border interviews featuring Amita Kuttner. Amita, I ask every single politician candidate uh, that I talk to the same first question. I'll ask it to you. Where does your sense of duty come from? Hmm. It's such a a long story, really. And I think it's very fundamental to me. So I'll speak to a couple different parts of it. One is definitely the kind of background that I was brought up in with my parents and the concept of of selfless service and wanting to provide for others, do as much good as possible, leave the world better than we found it, for instance. So that's definitely a part. And the other part of it for me is in my own self and identity and personality that I've had since I was very little, there is an inherent sense of, of justice. And so I see everything around me and what the world is like for people and how much there's so much inequity still. And so fundamentally within who I am, it makes me want to fight. And I feel like being here with the amazing possibilities that we have on this planet and everything that we have and the possibilities also in our society that I have a duty to help others find a way to flourish. And for us, as a basically as a citizen of earth to get to a place where we do a lot better in how we live here that can last for a lot longer now uh you can give back in many different ways i understand you are a astrophysicist if i'm not mistaken yes i am (laughs) and it's but you decided after university you would go into politics what made, what was the desire in 2017 to join the Green Party of Canada and then in 2019 to run in the federal election? So this started when I was in grad school, getting my PhD in astrophysics. I was following a lifelong passion from when I was a kid of learning about the universe, learning about space, learning about the nature of time. And I describe it as having had my head stuck in a black hole for a number of years. <laughs> And I guess when I finally took my head out of the black hole and looked back at my home on Earth, it was a worrying some picture, a worrisome picture, a worrying view. And I, 
at that moment went through the process of trying to figure out, or in grad school, many people are going through the process of what they're going to do with their lives. And in that decision, I was looking back and a lot of it had to do with seeing suffering and also seeing the amazing potential we have and it not being fulfilled. And we're risking throwing away a lot because of the greed of a few, because of rising inequality and, and not, I think, having a larger picture, which I had come so used to having by always having my head in space. So at that point, my focus became having an impact and changing for the better of people in general, the world. And so through conversations about kind of what's needed the most and what trajectories are most impactful, we decided that politics is one of the most impactful things that you can do. If you can get in or even if you can just influence discourse, you can actually change a lot. So that was that was the goal. Okay, let's try politics. And the you goal chose, overall oh, sorry, go yeah. ahead. I said the goal overall is impact and moving towards a just and sustainable living situation on earth. And so I was just looking at multiple trajectories of that. And so politics was basically the first one to try. And you decided federal was going to be your first uh, foray into politics. Most people would start municipal, potentially provincial. But you decided, let's go right for the gambit. Let's go federal. What was that decision behind it? Did Elizabeth May have a sway in your final decision to put your name on the ballot? So my decision to run federal was separate from choosing a party at all, actually. And so I decided to run entirely separate from all of that. And the decision to be federal is where I feel like it can be most useful. And I, I view really municipal politics as the area that you can actually get a lot more impact than people ever usually realize. But it's not the stuff that I'm going to be good at. I am, I am just not one to be talking about, about zoning and, and being useful. But when it comes to policy conversations over technology, over international relations, over... So what I was doing was work on artificial intelligence and automation and, and, and science, I can really help there. So it was kind of about trying to be as useful as possible as well and just going for the area that I know I can do. And there's also a certain amount of, you know, how satisfied I am with leadership at different levels. And I think we're lacking some sort of national direction and conversation. And there's 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 a missing piece there that was also encouraging. Um, and especially because I was bringing forward policy to do with technology. That's a that's something that I have expertise in. And that's a federal level issue for where I was going at it for that conversation. Um, and then I think. The other piece there is is just in terms of, you know, scope and where we're going. And like, sure, if I want to work on those, there is the traditional model of starting municipal and working up and getting the experience. But why not jump to the things I'm best at and why not go for what needs the most support and why not go for, okay, we're running out of time on a lot of things. So this needs to be dealt with at this level now. Let's just do it. And, and you, said, you said there was two uh, two decisions behind going federally. Uh, you made your first decision to run federal, and then you decided on the party. So what was the decision behind the party for yourself? Yeah, it was an interesting process. And I think that at heart, I'm, I'm pretty green. It's just true when I, when I dig down into it and look at what, look at what the party stands for in the end. But when you're going for impact, it's not the most obvious thing in the current political scope perhaps or, or scene so I kind of 
just was looking for a place that I could be impactful. And so I had multiple conversations. And on the national level, it was going to be really hard to talk about the issues that are interesting or relevant to me socially and identity wise um, with the conservative party. I don't like identity politics, but it would be hard to be me in that against that backdrop. And that showed up in, in the election last fall, too, with the conservative candidate that I was running against. Um, but it's not, I understand that no party is a monolith either. So that there, you know, there is a diversity of views in every party and I just wasn't going to be able to find that easily at the time. Um, I saw that some of the stuff, if I wanted to go for true impact on getting tech policy across, maybe working with liberals was going to be the best. But in my home writing, there was a liberal incumbent that I couldn't challenge because of their rules. And I didn't really want to play a bunch of politics internally in order to do that. So I ended up talking to the NDP because a lot of the issues that I care about are labor related and talking to the Greens. And it was within those conversations and the discussions of how the parties run internally that made me choose Green. And especially having a conversation with Elizabeth because I'm very, I guess I, I would say that I'm quite libertarian and I don't like the concept of internal control very much. So I definitely want the ability for everybody to, you know, have, have freedom of thought and expression and be able to bring up dissent within any political conversation, because I think that that's the only way you're going to get to true justice and equity is through understanding, not through imposition. So that 2019 federal election, I, I don't need to tell you because you were in it. Uh, you, the Greens started off very strong. You were projected to win potentially up to 20 seats in that election. Traditionally, with green support, by the end of the election, strategic voting starts to take place and people start to cast their ballots against one party and not for one party. That election happened. You you, you did increase your seat. Uh, Greens did increase their seats to three seats in that election, the highest they've ever held federally. Elizabeth May announced that she was going to step down to much surprise and to some not surprise. Uh, you decided that you were going to put your name forward for the leadership. Why? Why now? So on my end and from my understanding of having talked to Elizabeth, it wasn't a surprise at all. It was she was leader for a lot of years. And I think that it was fabulous, but it's a lot of work. And, and she wants to be able to focus also on representation. And so I think for a while she was ready to to kind of step aside of leadership um, and it was kind of well, had to make it for this election was waiting for people to be into the house with her and so that was the it was the right moment for that and there definitely is a history of of uh, polling projecting different possible results a while before and then you end up at the end and it doesn't quite pan out um, and I think there's a lot of factors in that strategic voting is definitely one and I am disappointed to be stuck in a political system that People feel like they have to vote against rather than for. Votes should all be earned. People should be able to participate and, and really be excited about what they're voting for and not be living in fear. Because I think the fear is not a good driver. It's very easy to go there. But if you continue to vote for a lesser evil, whatever that is, in anyone's mind, you're never going to get to the a possible future that is actually different, that is actually a much wider, more beautiful vision or possibility of how life can be. We're kind of stuck in this pendulum. Even if you know we have differing views of where that might go, we can't get there if we just do this thing. So even being willing to have those conversations is wider. So it's interesting. The decision to run was not an easy one. I, politics itself is not something that I really ever thought I was going to be doing. And so all that stuff about impact and everything was is 
totally what drives me. And at this point, I think that every movement goes through periods of large change and periods of stability. And it became clear to me and clear because there was a lot of people around me within the Green Party who kind of said, so Amita, we want you to run to be leader um, because we're looking to go in a particular direction. And that direction is something I think that people see and I've come to see that I represent. And that has to do with scientific credibility. It has to do with also understanding the personal implications of the climate emergency. Because when I was 14, I lost my house and my mother in a mudslide in North Vancouver. And so this really influences how I look at approaching climate policy because I want it to be focused on taking care of people on the ground, preparing for the realities, and less some sort of intellectual discussion over climate targets, but more uh, uh, something founded in reality and then connected on a larger scale to how the systems actually move and change that is relevant to every individual. Um, so with those pieces and and I believe wanting to make sure that we shift the movement towards and the party towards a focus on justice and where that comes from, it's interesting you asked about duty because that's really is the core to me, is doing right by one another. So with those things in mind, it became clear that I should think about running. And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, you know what, let's maybe it's time that we have an astrophysicist running things for once. See, see what happens there. <laughs> and so, it, and, and oh, given, the, given the drive for impact, sorry, given the drive for impact, it just it, it's definitely a way to continue that for me. So uh, I, I enjoy conversations like this because we get to dive deep into policy. Policy and I go hand in hand. But before we get into that part, I want to talk about you yourself and uh, your leadership. Uh, if you do become leader of the Green Party of Canada in October, uh, you will be leading a party that is right now trailing in the polls at 7%. How are you going to connect with every Canadian out there to say the Green Party is a viable party to become opposition, to become government in four, eight, six years? Yeah, so first, I think I look a little bit to history of how we've had this ebb and flow of parties in Canada already, and that we have watched political movements show up, grow, die and transform. So I think that kind of on the base level, we forget that as people because of our psychological understanding of where we exist in time. It's like, oh, a couple of years or whatever. And you, you miss this this piece that shows us that you can. It's We're not stuck in the current version of parties. And I, I kind of have my own issues just generally with partisan politics because I think it, it pigeonholes us when it shouldn't into understanding policy. And it goes for a kind of... Uh, club mentality rather than understanding and, and wanting to work together towards something. Um, so I think there's multiple pieces to that. One big one is messaging. And I think that previously the Green Party has been only speaking to a small subset of the country. And we need to learn to speak to everyone and not just speak to, but actually engage people in conversation and go back to the fact that we, as a, as a core, are a grassroots party that wants to reach out on the ground, connect at a community level, and just have those conversations. Because what made me so happy to run for the Greens is the idea that what an MP should be is a representative above all, and should be there to represent your constituents no matter what. 
And the next level is our party values and how we interpret those, how we go about it, and the willingness to show up in good faith and have conversations, not be judgmental, but to say, let's just talk through this. And then also the commitment to the evidence-based policy and that we will actually dig into why we want things to be the way they are, and then you figure out how to do them. Um, So there's a communications piece for sure, and we need to do that mostly through listening and, and, and starting to have conversations. And there's a community outreach piece that's also conversation based. And then there's the movement growing piece, which is starting to have discussions and starting to present a vision of the future that is completely unique. So not trying to basically fight other parties for ground but show that we we are actually presenting an entirely different, entirely new, interesting perspective and philosophy of the way that we can live that will help us kind of transform into the next, hopefully, era as a society and that we're inviting everybody in without judgment to belong in that movement. And it's not to say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to have any prejudice based on where you are or what what other movement you may have come from, what other political party you may have come from, or none. Also, the admission that politics itself can be really ugly and and just isn't a place that people feel welcome. And that, as a, as a young person, is actually probably the biggest piece is this, I keep getting asked, like, how do you get young people into politics? And it's like, well, maybe we should tell the truth. What? That, no. What? No. <laughs> come on. Whoa. Whoa. Come on. Slow down there. We all tell the truth, don't we? <laughs> <clears throat> uh, Meta truth, perhaps. The truth that um, that that politics is uh, a difficult place, and it's completely reasonable to have not wanted to participate. And you got to throw stuff away and completely transform the way that we're willing to do politics in order to make it a safe space, make it a place that people can belong and and. And in that spirit of representative democracy, actually let people have their views. When people come to the party, it's not about signing up for an ideology. It's about saying, hey, what do you need? What are you looking for? And by the way, we'd like to talk about where we're going in the future in terms of where we live. And even like for me as an astrophysicist, having that outside perspective and having that idea as like of a planet, as a planet, what are we doing? What is it that makes it so amazing that we get to live here? And how can we get to a place where people have the, every individual has the ability to lead a meaningful life and, and flourish? So what are you hearing on the ground across Canada with COVID-19? I'm assuming you're reaching out to Canadians in a different way than you anticipated before this whole thing started. So what are you hearing from the everyday, and I hate using that word, the everyday Canadian out there who wants to talk to you about your policies, your platform, your leadership campaign? I also don't like saying everyday Canadian because I think at the end we're all everyday Canadians. (laughs) Exactly. It's a method that that means it's me and not you, but really it's all of us. <laughs> yeah. This <laughs> is a different different experience, everyone. Um, so that depends a bit on on which group of people I'm talking to. And I don't mean group in any particular way either. It's basically I'm saying whether I'm talking to current Green Party members who are looking for a reinvigoration of the party and how we grow it. And so there's a very particular kind of internal conversation of what's the leadership style that's actually going to grow this party and to be able to move forward and 
you know, there's the whole thing about, you know, filling Elizabeth's shoes. And I definitely think whenever you're moving to a new leader after one that's been there for a long time and well-respected, that you shouldn't be trying to emulate that, but just be something perfectly self-consistent that's different and also good. So you aren't going through this comparative battle the entire time. Um, and then there's the other conversations with people. And I think in those conversations, it really has been about this, like, oh, I just don't want to do politics. Why would I care? Why? What does it have to offer me? And that's sad because it's politics is our method of change. And I completely understand the point of view of just never wanting to be involved because it's it seems like you can't do anything. It seems everything's entrenched. And that's where I think a lot of people are. And they've, even if they still vote, they've stopped paying attention to much because there's no, there's nothing new going on. And COVID-19 has given this, us this interesting opportunity where politics seems so awkward because there's so many immediate things to deal with, health, safety. Um, so many people that I know in my networks are just, you know, they're already working three jobs to barely make it. And everything seems like it's off balance and a little dystopia in the way that we're trying to like fight for survival in a prosperous world. And, you know, a lot of people that I know have actually been left out of CERB. And so it's just, it seems fractured and uncomfortable. And that seems, you know, that's the primary thing that people are concerned about right now. And politics seems like, what, what's this going on over here? Why are you still having these conversations? And then on the other side, it's the perfect moment to have that political conversation about transformative change and okay well this is clearly broken we're all now more or less on the same page that it's broken let's talk about what we want to do with it and change and so there there is that that openness to that conversation um but yeah i guess more than anything there the the theme that i'm getting is a is a distrust and a disappointment with current the current political state of things and and for me and for my generation of people that I talk to, also an undercurrent of lack of hope, definitely, about everything and the ability to do stuff. And it's like, okay, well, let's combine these and just take over politics <laughs> and finally get back to that conversation. But it's, you know, it's, it's hard to, to get people from there because it's when we've had our hope broken and when we've been basically trained to be told by some societal narrative in general that we don't have the ability to change things it's it's very hard to be willing to put in the effort when we're already putting in so much work to basically survive to be willing to take that that leap of faith and that risk but i think if we don't then we're just surrendering and why do that exactly um to win more seats, you will need to convince Canadians from coast to coast to coast that you will be the best leader and the best prime minister out there. You will need to convince NDPers, liberals, conservatives, PPCers, and people who don't vote. Let's be honest, there's a large majority of the population who does not get out and vote. How will you be able to bridge that divide between parties and get people to your side? And you mm. talked about communications, but there's an underlying theme where people will look at the Green Party and say, you're a one-issue party. We don't want to just vote for the environment. We have to vote for 
other things as well. So how do you bridge that divide between parties to get them to stay and vote for you? So it's the big question. Um, <laughs> I asked the big an- questions. I hopefully you have the big answers. <laughs> Good. Uh, so oh, it's just, it's complicated because I think it has multiple parts to it, and one is definitely the communications piece. And absolutely, whether it's been the intention or not, we have been seen as a one-issue party. And I think that that's we, we've always had a platform full of other things, but in terms of messaging and what we've been talking about, it's been an issue. And if I were to probably categorize what the goal of the party has been would be to get the conversation about climate change onto a national stage. And we've done that now. So what I'm hoping is that this leadership race is actually the reformation of what our goal is as a party. And this is the time where we say, now, you know what? Yes, absolutely. Anything that we put forward and any policies have to address that. They have to have a climate lens. We, it's a massive existential threat we're facing, but it's not it. And it's not the be all end all of our philosophy or what our, our values represent. And so being able to really frame that as something that's not just, oh, we need climate action is the only way that we move forward from here. I think if we go forward as a party saying we all need to unite across everywhere towards dealing with climate change, I think that's passed because it's really easy to undercut us on that. Everybody can talk about different solutions to climate change now. Whether they actually mean it and whether they actually follow through, it doesn't matter in the political scope. It doesn't. <laughs> Look at Andrew Scheer like, last election. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, you know, people will paint their logos green for a day just to make a point. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that that there's there, like you, I think you, you very well indicated there are so many levels of, of that political conversation. There are people who are very much entrenched and paying attention to the details of the political conversation. And then there are those that are completely checked out. And then I would say most people are somewhere in between. They look a little and they're like, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Politics is not doing anything for me, but what are you saying? Yeah, I'm fine with that because it isn't connecting to the core and the hope and the, the opportunities that are actually offered to every person and how it connects to them. And so that's, that's how I would see the, the real growth is that we have a structure to our messaging that talks about us being not a one issue party, but describes well that separate philosophy that we have and and then how to market it. And in conversation between kind of the national position of the party and all the regions and local places. So returning to the grassroots and saying, okay, let's just start these conversations in our communities and talk to people about what we believe the opportunities for the future are. And that has to be done really on a local basis because it's different for everyone. And it is not particularly an easy conversation to say, let's address the fundamental issues with the system and how we change them. And let's make sure that we do it in a non-prescriptive manner. Because I think that that's, that's one of my frustrations is that when you're dealing with national political parties, they often say, oh, I have the answer for you. And that's never something anyone wants to hear. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I, want to, I want to know what my, you know, my community needs. And then I want to see how that's going to be reflected in policy. And the trick at a national level is sewing those pieces together, finding the common ground for that common message and not alienating anybody. And then actually being able to say, okay, so what, what does your community need here? And how can we connect that overall vision of a world that is actually focused towards justice and long-term sustainability 
to what your community is going through at the moment and what it needs to grow and, and, and flourish. Now, it's great that we can sew all those pieces together, but Canada is 13 provinces, provinces and territories with unique issues in each individual province and territory. Uh, as the leader, you are going to have to balance uh, Quebec's needs against Alberta's needs, against BC needs, against Nova Scotia needs. How do we do that in a, such a divided time in our society? We see the rise of online hate through Twitter, through Facebook, how do we sew that together to make us a united confederation again? Something I lose sleep over. It's actually relates to why I'm doing this as a whole and how I approach politics in general. And regardless of where my policies and my ideas might fit on a political spectrum, why I avoid some of the labels that go with it. And I don't think I don't think that I'm a centrist. It's just that I I spent a decade in the US going to school and I watched as the divisions opened and widened and created a created really space for hate. Um, from every direction though. Like it was just nobody was talking to each other anymore. People got to mistrusting their neighbors. They weren't there for each other. They we watch the breakdown of communities rather than the other way around. And it's that division that I want to avoid entirely because I think it's it, all it is is detrimental. And that's also how I see the way that most political parties in Canada go about things. Even if they say we don't want to go down that road of division, the way that they talk about their policies is absolutely going down that road. Because <laughs> it's like, well, the way you're, you're automatically like kicking somebody out by having that conversation. But it is, it is tricky because we are, people have extremely different interests based in different places. Um, but that I think relates to our attitudes about communication and, and conversation. So within the party, I would want to see that done by making sure that we have open lines of communication to every region. So we give as much support to everywhere and actually say, okay, so what's what's going on for you? What do you need and how can we help with that? Because it should be that, that service-based and, and representative-based thing. So at the top, there should be less decision in a sense and it should be coming from the base upwards. And I think that actually does relate to the way that I would like to see our structures change a bit overall. I want to see more power with the municipalities and more power with the provinces uh, than with the federal government. I think the federal government is very useful because there are absolutely things that have to be done at that level, but to properly respect the regions and people in general, I think we need more power in municipalities. And this is true just from like a practical standpoint, I think. <laughs> you, you, it, right now, the way it is, right, is, is if at the local level you have to kind of petition upwards to be able to do things, where the biggest differences need to be made at the local level. And let's, let's just use the example for preparation for, say, like uh, extreme weather. And you're dealing with getting ready for flooding or forest fires or any of these things the work is done at the municipal level. They're the ones that understand that everything needs to be done and how it's done, but they have to go upwards to get funding in order to do these things. So it makes way more sense for all the decisions to be made at the appropriate level, basically. So you want 
um, a federal government that deals with things that connects regions. You want it to be one that makes sure that everyone's rights are protected. You want it to be one that says, okay, what are those rights? Are we wanting to make sure people have housing, people have food and water and all those things? But the solutions to those problems are probably not best done at the national level. They're just best coordinated at that level. So I think giving more power, even even in our tax structure, to local government, and then making sure that I think that will allow us to get along better, because then regions have more ability to govern themselves, and I think it'll be less difficult to agree on things because it's not going to feel like a region is is prescribing an answer for a different one. And there's a lot that we do completely agree on as a nation. And why not do that stuff and get that done at the national level? And then the things that we don't agree on, we can work on a more regional level. And this brings up the perfect time to transition into uh, our uh, talk on policy. As the Alberta podcast, I have to ask the Alberta question first, and I'm assuming you already know what the question is going to be. Uh, earlier, in, late in April, uh, Premier Jason Kenney came out and said he does not want to work with anyone who is against restarting the oil industry in Alberta because it's the lifeblood, uh, paraphrasing here, because it's the lifeblood and it's the backbone of the Canadian economy. How are you going to work with a premier who is saying that, but also I'm assuming, and I should never assume because it makes that an asset of myself, how are you going to transition the oil industry to more green technology over your tenure as potential Prime Minister of Canada? Mm. So it's tough working with with anybody that makes proclamations that are really overreaching. And I, when it comes to oil and gas, I look at what's going on globally. And I think that we need to be very, very aware of that. And when we're watching Europe go away from a fossil fuel market towards a circular economy and self-reliance, and we're even watching the Middle East do similar things, we need to be very careful about what we plan as our overall economic strategy. But I think this comes back to prescription and the relationship between different regions. So I'm from the area of BC that is really not interested in having pipelines end near here. And there's nothing I can do about that. I don't want them. But at the same time, I don't think that it is it is right for us to say we're going to tell Alberta how to switch its economy to what. It should be a conversation and it should be the decision of Alberta of what to do. And it's not a simple conversation. It's a complex conversation and there are people who are ready to have it. And so I would lean away from saying, you know, we've come up with all the answers and instead say, let's look at, let's look at that transformation, the economic transformation as a positive opportunity and not, and, and be very realistic also about what that transformation looks like. Because we don't, in no world, can we stop using oil and gas in a day. You can't just turn it off. And you can't also say to everybody who's working in an industry or who has promise of working in an industry that, sorry, goodbye. That's it for you now. That is not fair. It is not just. And we need to give the opportunity to every one of those people to have a future 
and an opportunity of what to go into that makes sense. And the other way that I look at that is because I've done work on automation. My concern there was largely to do with automation in the oil sands. And that's not a problem that's being solved either by anyone's conversation. So, <laughs> so it needs to, you know, we, we're, we're going to go through a large scale economic transformation on multiple fronts at the same time. And we need to be all on the same page about that. But it, it just it should not be one where we're saying we're telling you what to do. So there needs to be a piece where, you know, the people who are really seeing the dangers of having oil expansion through pipelines in their in their neighborhoods and they don't want them, that needs to be respected. But the fact that we have economies that are dependent on oil and gas also needs to be respected because we can't leave anyone out in the open. So we need to be able to be willing to provide support for that transition and that transformation, but not tell people what it needs to be. And so there's, I mean, there's a lot of different avenues on that and, and basically saying, well, what is the actual step-by-step -step plan that we're going to work together on to figure out for these industries? And what, how can we do this in a way that results in resilient economies for every region? And eventually, I'm absolutely the type of person that thinks that in order to stay living on this planet long term, we need to get to a fully circular economy where you're reusing resources because they are finite in the end and we just can't use them up. But in creating that economy, it has to be local and has to be, you know, sustaining the people who are there. And so it makes sense for people to have a stake in that. And that is economy in itself, that regeneration and that continuation and the focus on small business and cooperative um, power. Uh, so there's also the question of what we will be needing uh, you know, petroleum for. And if we're looking at what it's getting used for globally, you know, there is the legitimate question, why aren't we making our own durable plastics? And why aren't we going in that direction? But again, I don't think it should be up to me to decide <laughs> what happens, but that's the type of conversation that I think we should have. And there's issues, you know, some of the counter arguments to refining also have to do with environmental protection. Um, but I see us as in a, in a global system. So if we're currently shipping stuff over to Asia to then buy back cheap plastic products, why aren't we bolstering an industry to make good plastic products where we can control the environmental regulations to not destroy our own backyard at the same time. Agreed. Uh, you so you I, have opened up about 15 questions I want to ask you now. Um, <laughs> we'll start with the first one. Um, when I taught, I, I used to live in northern Alberta, the heart of the uh, oil industry. Uh, when I When I would always speak, I would get yelled at because I would say, Oil industry, oil companies are moving to more automated technology now. When 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we needed 20 people to do a job in the oil industry. Now we need five because we are moving to a more automated system. When re researching you, you are in favor of an AI tax, correct? Uh, kind of. So that... <laughs> That policy wasn't exactly represented the way that I originally had written it and intended it. So okay, so let, let's exactly. talk about it. What what does what does your AI tax mean? Because if I misunderstood it, people who are looking at your website might misunderstand it as well. Yeah. So that it, so the way it ended up going out through the the Green Party platform was just not the way that I intended it. So the conversation it's basically that there is no answer for it right now. But what's going on is we're looking at 
the large scale automation of most of our workforce, like 50%. And it's across so many industries. And that basically raises a bunch of questions and a bunch of problems. So they all need to be addressed a little differently. The idea behind some sort of taxation is the idea that if you do only have suddenly 50% of your workforce that actually has an income, you're going to have a loss in income tax revenue. So the idea would be that if people are automating, there needs to be some way to replace that tax revenue. Um, so that was the idea of an AI tax. Uh-oh. I don't know that any particular method for implementing that is sensible yet. So it definitely doesn't make sense to say you automate one person, we tax you for that one person, because it, it like that is not actually yeah. how that works out. But there needs to be some way to deal with the fact that if you have large corporations automating at a large scale and getting a bunch of new revenue and laying off people, that they don't get to keep all that new revenue so that we can give it to the people they just laid off and help them train to be in a new industry. Um, and then the other side of that is definitely is definitely the support piece and dealing with the fact that if you are if we are moving to a place where a lot less people are working, uh, we need to make sure that people have the ability to have meaningful lives. And again, I don't want to be prescriptive. I don't think that if people you know love doing something that gets automated, they should still be able to do that. Uh, and it needs to be a discussion of also what areas we want to make sure we train people to be able to be employed in. I, and I think the conversations of a guaranteed liberal income or universal basic income are important there because it means it catches people and you don't have basically a bunch of, of people going through horrible transitions and, and fear and you know just a bad time for people's families as they go through one step to another and, and this happens in our society. And I think I worry about that because it could happen very quickly. Okay. And we're not, you know, if it's, if it's slow, which it, it's already started, so if you watch, like, people are already being replaced by technology in many different ways. If it dribbles through, then you, you can kind of say, yeah, you trend here and there, and you, it's, it's uncomfortable, but people make it. But if it happens suddenly, which it is likely to do with AI, then you don't have a place to put people right away. So you need kind of a system just to, just to hold while people, while we look at where our economy should go and what people should be doing. And a lot of it, that, you know, we there are just regions that we need more people to work in. So, true. why not? In your original in the original question and in your answer, you talked about uh, making more products here in Canada, keeping them in Canada, not shipping them to Asia, and then bringing them back because you're basically buying back your own product, but in a different form. How do you get businesses, and this might be one of those prescriptive things that you're talking about, how do you get businesses to come back to Canada when it's cheaper to make things in other countries, in other parts of the world, when there's less red tape in those countries, and it, besides slapping them with tariffs, you're probably not going to be able to bring them back on day one? Yeah, well, maybe this is a bit out there, but why do we need them? Why can't we start our own? It's, you know, I'm, I'm a, definitely a large supporter of local economy because I think that's what is the most resilient long term. So if we need things, why aren't we doing it for ourselves and making sure that we're supporting, you know, can- Canadians in, in our economy before anything else? And our dependence on large corporations, I think, is actually a bit dangerous. And if we're, we're capable of, of supporting what really is the 
the largest employer and the largest economic driver is small and medium enterprises. So I think focusing on that and and being really careful about the stability of our supply chain. So I think that COVID-19 has brought that up, especially when it comes to food. We, we need more, more, more security in, in making sure that we have all our necessities. And that's not to say that, you know, global trade isn't really important. It doesn't have its place as well. It absolutely does. Uh, you know, I don't expect that we're going to start growing bananas and chocolate and coffee, but <laughs> you never know. You never know. Let's do it. You and me. Let's get plant some right, banana trees. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, the next set of area that I want to talk about, and this is because uh, I have a passion for it, and I just want to make. I just want to see what uh, what your opinion on it is. And I, I shouldn't I shouldn't say I have a passion for this, but it's more of a area that I've always uh, found interesting. Do you think Canada has failed our Indigenous and First Nations communities? <laughs> yeah, loaded question. I know. I apologize. Because I, I, I mean, I the the very founding of our nation is one that's based on colonialism, and 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 racism and, and genocide. And I think that we need to have that conversation and not be afraid of that conversation either. Because I think it can go in a very positive direction and one of, of, of healing. Because there's a lot of, of systemic racism and injustice that we have to do something about. And I think those of us who've benefited from from what's what Canada is need to take some responsibility in that. And so I think it's it goes beyond a failing, <laughs> but is a little more, or completely fundamental, and I don't I don't think it should be a divisive issue. I think it's something that we should come together on, and it, we should be open to the conversations of how to look at that fundamental change, and admit, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the bias that exists now still, and a lot of the assumptions that people have, and it's just time to to break it down. I'm assuming you're in favor of implementing the truth and reconciliation uh, recommendations that were put forward in the report, correct? Yeah, absolutely. What about the United Nations Declaration of uh, Indigenous the Rights of Indigenous People? Yep, absolutely. Why haven't we been able to do it now? It seems like Canada is divided so badly on that declaration because it's a United Nations document that's trying to be forced upon our country. I, I, I'm not saying it's that. I, I think it's a thing that we need to implement. But why do you think it's so divisive in today's society? It's a very good question. And I think it's because we've looked at it from a particular angle. And one of it being external. And one where it's, it's going to mean an overhaul of the way we look at certain regulatory processes. It means an overhaul of the way we look at our industries and the way we relate to each other. So it's really hard to do. And anytime something's hard, there's a there's a strong desire to push against it. It's a very natural thing to do. So I think to make it less divisive, we have to make it our own. It has to stop being something that's being implemented from outside. It has to stop being prescriptive. It has to come from us and say, you know what? We can find another way to have a flourishing economy and also respect indigenous rights and sovereignty. And we need to figure it out. And I don't think that that's impossible at all, but it's going to be it's going to be tough. But so is looking at the reality of it. 
Excellent. Thank you. Uh, it, like I said, it's just an area that it's always uh, fascinated me. I, I went to university and I studied Indigenous issues during my history uh, <laughs> many history classes that I had at Queen's University in Ontario, so thank you for your comments on that. Um, the last area before we move into the final part of the interview is uh, rural communities. Rural communities are the backbone, and some will say the backbone of Canada, because they are the small, intimate gatherings of people that make up uh, large pockets of the population. How does someone from Vic Vancouver, from Burnaby's North, connect with the rural voter it's really funny because i i moved <laughs> oh I sorry <laughs> even better uh, that's fine i was i was just going to mention quickly about indigenous rights that um i believe it, it's central to my campaign decolonization and going through the process of understanding how how our systems and our systems of governance and our own kind of attitudes and ways of life are colonial and and getting to a place where we're not afraid of that and instead kind of taking it as an opportunity to heal um but it's a long process so reaching rural communities is is absolutely important and i think there's just like there's the general policy angle of what are the things that we can do to help like access to internet uh food security is also one for sure uh transportation is another big one in in the missing and murdered indigenous women two-spirit people trans people and girls report there's also the conversation about the dangers of not having transportation and public transportation available between different areas that are that are rural um and i think also just generally the conversation and political discourse tends to ignore it, ignore people that aren't in, in urban areas. And policies really are, are so different for what makes sense. And therefore, I think it, it, it comes back to the prescriptive angle. It's like, okay, well, we're going to go for this thing. Uh, or like, you know, we're going to support, you know, I, one of my frustrations is honestly the conversation around electric cars. Um, and implementing infrastructure for that and saying everybody needs to move over electric cars, I think, is both over, overly simplistic and doesn't solve a lot of problems about what it's actually like to live anywhere. Because I would say that in urban areas, we should be focusing on electrified public transport. In rural areas, we should you know, have rail between places, and we're not going to get away from car transportation. I don't think t- telling everybody they're going to have to move to electric cars makes sense. So there, there needs to be this fundamental understanding that life is different in different places, and we're not there yet. So I live on an island off the coast of British Columbia now that is off-grid, so I have solar and uh, microhydro in winter. But here, you know, it's not I – I have a Ford F-350. Um, it's not like I can stop living the way that we have to yet. And to, and to try to impose some sort of concept of how everyone is supposed to go through a transformation to sustainable living is just not going to look the same in different places. So one part is having that understanding and, and discourse about how life is different. And then the other is, is just investing in providing services. And I think that it's so true having tight-knit communities and, and that community-building aspect is something that often gets lost and something that we really need to focus on for the future. Now, the next, before I ask the next question, I have to ask a little supplementary question. Um, are you in favor of a green levy, carbon levy, carbon tax, or however you want to carbon, call it today? Yeah. Um, 
Yes, but it not done the way it's done right now, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does, because that's what I'm going to talk about. Rural communities are more disproportionately affected by carbon taxes. You have to ship your food further. You have to get more services further to you. You have to drive to urban centers to get services sometimes for medical conditions. Um, how do we build the gap to ensure that our, ur- our rural communities are not being taxed to death when it comes to a potential carbon levy tax? Yeah, so there's a couple parts to that. One is the fact that I think current implementation ignores ignores the concept that we don't currently have a choice about the systems that we use. So it's, it's, I honestly, I would say it's kind of a privileged angle to be like, oh, we'll just put this here. And then you ignore the fact that people don't have a choice in everything. So they're just now dealing with this extra piece. Um, and that's not, it's not fair and it's not solving the problem. So my biggest complaint is that some of the largest polluters and just are exempt. And so it's the opposite of the way it should be. You need to be having this enforced on people that have not people, but companies that have outsized impact and those that are the most consumptive, which are generally those actually, you know, urban footprint may be technically smaller, but it's generally not. It's it's more to do with if people are kind of super consumptive in their lifestyles. So like, you know, have mega yachts, et cetera. Like <laughs> that, you know, that's where a lot of the stuff comes from, not from people trying to live their everyday life where, where it's been tough to, you know, do anything without having a carbon footprint. So I think we need to shift away from putting the weight on the individual, both on actual taxation, but also when it comes to the responsibility of change. So when, you know, when you're saying, well, really, we need fundamental systemic change to deal with this, why are we making the individual person pay for it? It's just not reasonable. Um, so the other part of that is I, I have a, I, I like the concept of incorporating external costs into goods. So we actually look at, you know, what something is going to actually be worth to produce or whatever, but you can't do that without providing the ability for people to actually afford it. So that's that's the fundamental piece is in all of this, you want to make sure that we're getting starting to get a realistic picture of what our influence is on the world, but never punishing an individual for living their life the way that the only way that we've been offered so far. Understandable. Um, we are almost at our, our hour here, and I want to make sure that I, 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 in all transparency, I'm giving everyone an hour. My last question to you before we do wrap up, uh, I give uh, the candidate two minutes to pitch uh, their view to the uh, about 800 and I think about 90 with the last count uh, listeners who are subscribers of the show. And uh, that's across Canada of why... Amita should be the next leader of the Green Party and why they should take out a membership and support your candidacy. All right. Well, I'm going to speak, I think, here to everybody that is is fed up with the way that things have gone with our political discourse for the last, well, uncountable number of years, pretty much, that's heading in the direction of division and where there is no place for people who want to bring new ideas to talk about different possible futures without judgment. So 
being willing to talk to people who are coming from a different area, coming from a different background, and actually trying to get to a place of understanding. And that's what we're about. We are about the future and unity and justice, making sure we're following the evidence and being prepared for everything that comes our way on the ground and as you know, as a as a political entity as well as within the Green Party. So what I think we're offering is is really an invitation. It would be great for people to to take out a membership and help us pick the direction of the Green Party to be one that is, is future driven, that is science driven, and that has a real connection to the lives of everyday people and what it means to go through and face the crises that we're facing as individuals, not just as some ideas in Ottawa. But it's more than that. This is the personal invitation for anyone to show up and have an actual conversation. I want the Green Party to be a place that is one of belonging for everybody. So that when you're here, you're welcome to be yourself and everything that that means. And we will treat every individual with dignity rather than uh, discrimination or judgment. Awesome. I want to thank you very much for this. To my listeners who are still here, um, I will be linking Amita's uh, website in the show notes below. And if you want to support their leadership bid, the link to join the Green Party will also be in the show notes as well. Uh, Amita, I want to take this moment again, once again, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, Good luck on the rest of the campaign, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much, and thank you so much for having me in this lovely conversation. And once again, thank you to our guest for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview, and I really hope you did too. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week.